Section 18 of Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas. Heart, a Schoolboy's Journal by Edmondo Diamichos. Translated by Isabel Florence Hapgood. May. Children with the Rickets. Friday the 5th. Today I took a vacation because I was not well, and my mother took me to the Institute for Children with the Ricketts, whither she went to recommend a child belonging to our porter, but she did not allow me to go into the school. Did you not understand, Enrico, why I did not permit you to enter? It was an order not to place before the eyes of those unfortunate, there in the midst of the school, as though on exposition, a strong, healthy boy. They have already but too many opportunities for making painful comparisons. What a sad thing. Tears rushed from my heart when I went in. There were sixty of them, boys and girls. Poor tortured bones. Poor hands. Poor little shriveled and distorted feet. Poor little deformed bodies. I found many charming faces with eyes full of intelligence and affection. There was one little child's face with a pointed nose and a sharp chin of an old woman, but it wore a smile of celestial sweetness. Some, viewed from the front, are handsome and appear to be without defects, but when they turn round, they cast a weight upon your soul. The doctor was there, visiting them. He set them upright on their benches and pulled up their little garments to fill their swollen stomachs and enlarged joints. But they did not show the least shame. Poor creatures. It was evident that they were children who were used to being undressed, examined, turned round on all sides. And to think that they are now in the best stages of their malady, when they hardly suffer at all any more. But who can say what they suffered during the first stage, while their bodies were undergoing the process of deformation, when with the increase of their infirmity they saw affection decrease around them? Poor children saw themselves left alone for hour after hour in a corner of the room or the courtyard, badly nourished, and at times scoffed at or tormented for months by bandages and by useless orthopedic apparatus. Now, however, thanks to care and good food and gymnastic exercise, many are improving. Their schoolmistress makes them practice gymnastics. It was a pitiful sight to see them at a certain command, extend all those bandaged legs under the benches, squeezed as they were between splints, knotty and deformed, limbs which should have been covered with kisses. Some could not rise from the bench, but remained there, with their heads resting on their arms, stroking their crutches with their hands. Others, on making the thrust with their arms, felt their breasts fell them, and fell back on their seats, pale but smiling, to conceal their panning. Ah, Enrico, you, other children, do not prize your good health, and it seems to you so small a thing to be well. I thought of the strong and thriving lads, whom their mothers carry about in triumph, proud of their beauty. I could have clasped all those poor little heads. I could have pressed them to my heart in despair. I could have said, had I been alone, I will never stir from here again. I wish to consecrate my life to you, to serve you, to be a mother to you all, to my last day. 
and in the meantime they sang, sang in peculiar, thin, sweet, sad voices, which penetrated the soul. When their teacher praised them, they looked happy, and as she passed among the benches, they kissed her hands and wrist, for they are very grateful for what is done for them, and very affectionate. These little angels have good minds, and study well, the teacher told me. The teacher is young and gentle, with a face full of kindness, but with a certain expression of sadness, like a reflection of the misfortunes which she caresses and comforts. Dear girl, among all the human creatures who earn their livelihood by frail, there is not one who earns it more holier than you. Your Mother Sacrifice, Tuesday, ninth. My mother is good, and my sister Sylvia is like her, and has a large and noble heart. Yesterday evening I was copying a part of the monthly story, from the Apennines to the Andes, which the teacher has given out to us, all in small portions to copy, because it is so long. When Sylvia entered on tiptoe and said to me hastily, and in a low voice, Come to Mama with me. I heard her and Papa talking together this morning. Some affair has gone wrong with Papa, and he was sad. Mama was encouraging him. We are in difficulties, do you understand? We have no more money. Papa said that it would be necessary to make sacrifices in order to recover himself. Now we must make sacrifices too, must we not? Are you ready to do it? Well... I will speak to Mamma, and do you agree and promise her on your honor that you will do everything that I shall say? So saying, she took me by the hand and led me to our mother, who was sewing, lost in thought. I sat down on one end of the sofa, Sylvia on the other, and she immediately began. Listen, Mamma, I have something to say to you. Both of us have something to say to you. Mamma stared at us in surprise and Sylvia began. Papa has no money, has he? What do you mean? replied Mama, turning crimson. Has he not indeed? What do you know about it? Who has told you? I know it, said Sylvia, resolutely. Well, then, listen, Mama, we must make some sacrifices, too. You promised me a fan at the end of May, and Enrico was expecting his box of paints. We don't want anything now. We don't want to waste a soldo. We shall be just as well pleased, you know. Mama tried to speak, but Sylvia said, No, it must be this way. We have decided. And until Papa has money again, we don't want any fruit or anything else. Broth will be enough for us, and we will eat bread in the morning for breakfast. So we shall spend less on the table, for we already spend too much, and we promise you that you will always find us perfectly contented. Is it not so, Enrico? I replied that it was. Always as contented, repeated Sylvia, closing Mama's mouth with one hand. And if there are any other sacrifices to be made, either in the manner of clothing or anything else, we will make them gladly. We would even sell our presents. I would give up all my things and serve you as your maid. We will not have anything done out of the house any more. I will work all day long with you. I will do everything you wish. I am ready for anything, for anything, she exclaimed, throwing her arms around my mother's neck. If Papa and Mamma can only be saved further troubles, 
if I can only see you both once more at ease and in good spirits, as in former days, between your Sylvia and your Enrico, who love you so dearly, who would give their lives for you. Ah, I have never seen my mother so happy as she was on hearing these words. She never before kissed us on the brow in that way, weeping and laughing and unable to speak. Then she assured Sylvia that she had not understood rightly, that we were not in the least reduced circumstances, as she imagined, and she thanked us a hundred times and was cheerful all the evening, until my father came in. When she told him all about it, he did not open his mouth, poor father. But this morning, as we sat at the table, I felt at once both a great pleasure and a great sadness. Under my napkin I found my box of colors, and under hers Sylvia found her fan. THE FIRE THURSDAY ninth. This morning I had finished copying my share of the story, from the Apennies to the Andres, and was seeking for a theme for the original composition, which the teacher had assigned us to write, when I heard an unusual talking on the stairs, and shortly after two firemen entered the house, and asked permission of my father to inspect the stoves and chimneys, because a chimney was on fire on the roof, and they could not tell to whom it belonged. My father said, "'Tray, do so, and although we had no fire burning anywhere, they began to make the round of our apartments and to lay their ears to the walls, to hear if the fires were roaring in the flues, which ran up to the other floors of the house. While they were going through the rooms, my father said to me, "'Here is the theme for your composition, Enrico, the fireman. Try to write down what I am about to tell you. I saw them at work two years ago.' One evening, when I was coming out of the Balbo Theater late at night, on entering the Via Roma, I saw an unusual light and a crowd of people collecting. A house was on fire. Tongues of flame and clouds of smoke were bursting from the windows and the roof. Men and women appeared at the windows and then disappeared, uttering shrieks of despair. There was a dense throng in front of the door. The crowd was shouting, they will be burned alive. Help! The firemen! At that moment a carriage arrived. Four firemen sprang out of it, the first who had reached the town hall and rushed into the house. They had already gone in when a horrible thing happened. A woman ran to a window of the third story with a scream, clenched the balcony, climbed down it, and remained thus clinging, almost suspended in space, with her back outwards, bending beneath the flames which flashed out from the room and almost licked her hand. The crowd uttered a cry of horror. The firemen, who had been stopped on the second floor by mistake by the terrified lodgers, had already broken through a wall and into a room, when a hundred shouts gave them warning. On the third floor! On the third floor! They flew to the third floor. There they found an infernal uproar, beams from the roof crashing in, corridors filled with a suffocating smoke, in order to reach the rooms where the lodgers were imprisoned, there was no other way left but to pass over the roof. They instantly sprang upon it, and a moment later something which resembled a black phantom appeared on the tiles in the midst of the smoke. It was the corporal of the firemen who had been the first to arrive. But in order to get from the roof to the small set of rooms cut off by the fire, he was forced to pass over an extremely narrow space between a dormer window and the eaves trowel. All the rest was in flames, and that tiny space was covered with snow and ice, 
and there was no place to hold on. "'Tis is impossible for him to pass,' shouted the crowd below. The corporal advanced along the edge of the roof. All shuddered and began to observe him with bated breath. He passed. A tremendous hurray rose toward the heavens. The corporal resumed his way, and on arriving at the point which was threatened, he be began to break away with furious blows of his axe, beams, tiles, and rafters, in order to open a hole through which to descend unto the house. Meanwhile, the woman was hanging outside the window. The fire raged with increased violence over her head. Another moment and she would have fallen into the street. The hole was opened. We saw the corporal pull off his shoulder belt and lower himself inside the other fireman who had arrived followed. At that instant, a very lofty porta ladder, which had just arrived, was placed against the house in front of the windows, which issued flames. In manacle, house, but it seemed as though they were too late. No one can be saved now, they shouted. The firemen are burning. The end has come. They are dead. All at once the black form of a corporal came in sight of the window, with the balcony lighted up by the flames overhead. The woman clasped him around the neck. He caught her with both arms, drew her up, and laid her down inside the room. The crowd set up a shout, a thousand voices strong, which rose above the roar of the conflagration. But the others, and how were they to get down? The ladder, which leaned against the roof on the front of the another window, was at a good distance from them. How could they get a hold of it? While the people were saying this to himself, one of the firemen stepped out of the window, set his right foot on the window sill, and his left on the ladder, standing thus upright in the air. He grasped the lodgers one after the other, as the other men handed them to him from within, passed them on to the comrade who had climbed up from the street, and who, after securing a firm grasp for them on the rungs, sent them down, one after the other, with the assistance of more firemen. First came the woman who had clung to the balcony, then a baby, then another woman, then an old man. All were saved. After the old man, the firemen who had remained inside descended. The last to come down was the corporal who had been the first to hasten up. The crowd received them all with a burst of applause, but when the last made his appearance, the vanguard of the rescuers, the one who had faced the abyss in advance of the rest, the one who would have perished had it been fated that one should perish, the crowd saluted him like a conqueror, shouting and stretching out their arms with an affectionate impulse of admiration and of gratitude, and in a few minutes his obscured name, Giuseppe Robino, rang from a thousand throats. Have you understood? That is courage, the courage of the heart, which does not reason, which does not waver, which dashes blindly on like a lightning flash, wherever it hears the cry of a dying man. One of these days I will take you to the exercises of the firemen, and I will point out to you, Corporal Robino, for you would be very glad to know him, would you not? I replied that I should. Here he is, said my father. I turned round with a start. The two firemen, having completed their inspection, were crossing the room to the door. My father pointed to a smaller of the men, who had straps of gold braid, and said, Shake hands with Corporal Robino. The Corporal stopped, smiled, and offered me his hand. I shook it. He made a salute and withdrew. 
Do not forget it, said my father, for out of the thousands of hands which you will shake in the course of your life, there will probably not be ten which possess the worth of his. End of section 18. Recording by Kristen Lewis, Houston, Texas.